Well, good morning. Really, really enjoyed the time of worship this morning. It really centers us in the, in the place where we're living in the Gospel of John right now. Uh, for those who are visiting with us or if you're new to us, we've been spending these uh, summer months in the Gospel of John and dropping in in key places uh, in John's Gospel, uh, noticing and paying attention to some of the big kind of mega themes in, in John's Gospel. And this morning we're going to uh, dive into John 17 if you want to turn in your Bibles there. We're going to spend some time setting it up though. This is one of those defining, defining chapters. Um, if you've been following with us, and I hope you have, uh, John 17 occurs as a part of this broader section of John 13 through 17. And, and it's important to see it in the context uh, of those chapters and, and, and what's taking place in those chapters. Um, the events of John 13 through 17 really lead us into the final week of Jesus' life. And in so many ways, they set the tone and the direction for all that's going to unfold over the next five to seven days for Jesus. Now, as, as we come to John 13 through 17, and those of you who are familiar with the story are aware of this, it took place in a very private setting. And we are given through John's eyes, and, and I, I, you remember, I think it was last week I mentioned that these chapters of 13 through 17 are not told by any other gospel writers, just John. John, through his insider's perspective, uh, gives us an insider's look into what were some of the most personal moments personal conversations and instruction that took place between Jesus and his close to his followers before his arrest. This is a very private, even intimate conversation that's taking place. And we are given an inside perspective into, into the conversation and all that takes place. And this, this series of conversations ends with John 17. And it's a prayer the entire chapter is a prayer, and it's the longest, most personal prayer we have recorded from Jesus. And with the weight of what would unfold over the next couple of days, with Jesus' arrest and his death, what we see is stunning because we see Jesus' heart for the safety and well-being of those who would remain on earth after his resurrection. I mean, here's what you don't hear. Uh, guys, I, I need you to stand with me. You have no idea what this next couple of days is gonna be like. You hear none of that. What, what you hear is uh, this deep concern for their safety and their well-being. And, and because of when Jesus prayed it, uh, this is arguably the final major section, even though conversations would take place in, in the weeks following his resurrection, this prayer reflected the weight of what Jesus was most concerned about. He kind of grabbed together things and themes and, and, and said, this, this is what I, I want you to most remember. And, and what it affords us is his hope and his vision for his followers. It's, it's a remarkable prayer. And had you been in the, in the room that evening, um, 
probably obvious to you, Jesus prayed this out loud. This wasn't a private prayer that Jesus prayed. He, he prayed it out loud and, and likely around the table was praying it over the disciples. And I can imagine that they hung on every word. Now what I want to do this morning before we take a look at a couple of portions, I, I think it's important that we just experience the prayer as it was experienced. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the prayer. I No slides in front of you. Um, right now I would even encourage you to not be looking down at your Bibles um, or your phones, as the case may be. And I just want you to absorb and allow just the, maybe some of the, the, the beauty and the weight of Jesus' prayer uh, as though he were praying it for you, for me, for us. And we were experiencing Jesus praying these words over us. Um, so after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You, you granted me authority over all people that I might give eternal life to all those you have given to me. Now this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now Father glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. And now they know everything that you have, that you, everything you have given me comes from you. Um, I have given them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. And they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for these. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and the glory has come to me through these, and I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone, however. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that the world or so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may myself may be in them. It's a remarkable prayer. Uh, time... Uh, does not allow me to work through each portion of the richness of Jesus' prayer. And so for the next few moments, I've chosen to highlight just a couple that stand out. And then we're going to back end, back in and, and talk about why this is such a, a needed prayer for you and me today. I want to begin in verse 4, uh, the first thing I want to pull out. Uh, Jesus said, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had be with you before the world began. Uh, Jesus begins this prayer with a number of just observations uh, about himself and about the role he played in the relationship he enjoyed with his father. And God had given Jesus the authority to give eternal life to people. It was an authority that only Jesus possessed. And in, in very clear terms, uh, Jesus described eternal life, and this is, this is fascinating. He, he described eternal life not in terms of its chronology, not its duration, but in terms of its character. Um, see, People would not only, that, that people would only know, would, would know the only true God in Jesus. Uh, verse 3, he said it in such clear terms, this is eternal life. This is the character of eternal life that they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And, and right at the center of Jesus' passion and concern was that people would know his father and have this deep relationship with the Father. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And, and over the next number of weeks, Jesus' work on earth would culminate with his death, his resurrection, and, and his ascension. And, and it's this marvelous statement. He finished his work. Jesus' faithfulness to his mission was the way he honored his Father. And it's this rich statement that, that Jesus had come to earth 
uh, with a mission, with a task, and he had finished it. And, and, and the way that he brought honor to his father was not only by being the son of the father, but by fulfilling the very thing he was called and sent to do. He had fulfilled his mission. And, and now he would return to his father, fully restored to the honored place he enjoyed throughout eternity. And in the substance, so against this, the, the richness of this background, the prayer actually begins in verse 9 of John 17. I pray for them. And, and I'm not praying for the world. And in this moment, his concern was not for, for people beyond the, 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 the people closest to him. His heart was just kind of riveted on those who, who loved him and followed him. He says, I'm praying for them. Um, they're, they're the ones you've given me. They, they are yours. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Of course, talking about Jesus returning back after his resurrection. And Holy Father, uh, to my knowledge, the only time that Jesus describes God in that language, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then a few verses later in verse 15, just to emphasize it again, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You see, Jesus knew something. Jesus knew um, what was ahead for those who followed him after he left. And so he asked his father to protect them, specifically to protect them from the evil one and from Satan. Um, and I want you to notice very carefully the very end of verse 11. If we can go back to that verse for just a moment. Uh, Jesus says, protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. Just a couple of observations uh, from this verse. Protect them. Teroo, um, uh, the, the word means keep them, preserve them. And in the way they would be preserved was by the power of God's name, his character. God himself, the name that he had given Jesus. Protect them. And then these, these fascinating words, so that they may be one as we are one. The power that resides in the, in the character of God would, would come alongside of them and the desired outcome is not what we would have expected. And Jesus says that they would be one as we are one. That they would remain unified in their loyalty to Jesus. That they would find strength together in community. Now here's, here's the key that unlocks John 17 and in how we look at a passage like this and that is understanding that John 17 was actually a prayer of commissioning. See, Jesus was launching his disciples into something. And he was, he was praying for them as they were going to be activated. Um, this is not simply a kind prayer he prayed for those he loved. We, we often look at this passage and go, that's just such a wonderful prayer. This was a prayer of commissioning. They were being sent out into a world that would sometimes be dark, difficult, and dangerous. And Jesus knew that full well. Uh, just as he had stepped into the earth... 
And, and face the reality of that, he was now sending them out and, and to remain faithful to what they are called to do, as Jesus had modeled, they would need God's protection. They would not have the resources uh, internally uh, to, to protect and stand off and hold off and, and, and all that was, was going to take place. And they would need one another to stand firm. And verse 17, a couple of rich verses. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, the word sanctify simply means I'm setting them apart. They're being set apart for something unique. Strengthen them, sustain them by all the truths they learned about me and from me. Jesus says, I taught them. Uh, back in verse 8, I gave them the words you gave me. And they accepted them. And now they were going to become the stewards and the carriers of everything they had been taught by Jesus. And the chapter reaches almost this, this pivotal moment in verse 18 when Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And, and so this was a commissioning. They would follow Jesus' example and, and carry on the mission he had begun. And when you look at the, the now 11 that remained in the room, they did it well. They did it well. You look forward into the book of Acts, and, and we read about the courage and the boldness displayed by Jesus' followers in the face of, of the opposition and a persecution they faced over the next number of decades. And of the 11 in the room with Jesus to hear this prayer, all of them but John would lose their life because of their faith. John was the only one that would die a natural death. And, and so they understood the cost of what Jesus was calling them into. Now, I want you to notice something. Uh, I, I'm going to pause here for a second. We'll come back to the story in just a moment. But I want you to notice the language of Jesus' prayer. You're going to see this all throughout. And I, I want to set you up, call it out, so that you can notice it for how remarkable it is with what Jesus is doing. He uses very precise language. Beautifully summarized in verse 10, he says, he's talking about Jesus, of course. He says, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Now, to bring language to that, um, there is an interwovenness. I'm not sure that's a word. There is an interwovenness, and there is an inter connection, interdependence that existed between Jesus and the Father. And, and you're going to see this throughout this prayer, um, that, that they may be one as we are one. And there's this deep interconnection that takes place. Now, a word that may be new to some of you, uh, at least used in this setting, is, is the word Trinitarian. And in chapters 15 and 16, John had talked about the role and the place of the Spirit, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, they live in eternal relationship with each other. There's an interdependence that they share with one another. Um, it was and is uh, what I would call eternal community, shared relationship, shared mission, shared resources. They had unique roles, but everything was shared. 
Uh, the Trinity is so difficult for us to bring language to. It's as glorious as it is mysterious. But, but here's what I want you to notice as we move through this passage. As followers of Jesus, we now participate in the fellowship and community of the Trinity. The oneness that exists within the eternal community of Father, Son, and Spirit, we are brought into. We share oneness with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We share a oneness of mission with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And we share all the resources of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. See, we live in a Trinitarian relationship, in dynamic. It's what Jesus has brought us into. And like Jesus, and we're going to develop this over the next few minutes, our lives now are inseparably interwoven and interdependent. Not just with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are interwoven and interdependent upon one another. Everyone who is brought in to this circle of community now is interwoven and interdependent with one another. And while we remain and reside in the world, we do so within the community and the closeness of the relationship of the Trinity. Now, that's a bit theological, but sometimes we fail to appreciate the richness of what we have in our relationship with God. Let's go back to the passage, and, and what I just share with you will, will become very, very clear in just a moment. It'll bring context and richness to the passage. Uh, the next highlights verse 20, where Jesus shifts. And he's prayed most of his prayer for those in the room with him. And now he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for you guys. Um, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And, and by extension, all those down through history, up to you and me. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm not just praying for, I'm praying for you that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be in us. See, there's the language again. You see the, you see the language that is, is kind of bringing this passage together. Just as you are in me and I, uh, may they also be in you so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one. There it is again, as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity that the world will know that you sent me that all of them may be one. It's hard for us to comprehend this, isn't it? And we live with so many categories. Um, Jesus is, is talking about this, this oneness. Um, it transcends and crosses all human barriers, ethnic barriers and racial barriers gender barriers, socioeconomic and geographic barriers, culture and custom, church, theology, and denominational tradition. It transcends all of those. 
It's, it's a unity that is born out of, out of a shared relationship with the Trinity. And Jesus' prayer is quite simple. May all of them, may all of the people brought into this, this community with the Trinity, may they be one just as you are in me and I am in you. May they have and enjoy and reflect and display the very relationship that you and I enjoy. May they be in us. May they be brought into complete unity. And then he just kind of drops the mic. That the world and this oneness will be the thing that causes the world to know that you sent me. And have loved them as much as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer now is uniquely relevant to our lives today in this cultural moment. we may be more connected to people today than any time in history. Text, email, Apple Watch, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and probably a dozen more that I'm too old to feel cool to be a part of, right? <laughs> um, more connected than we've ever been at any time in history, but digital connection is not community. In fact, I would suggest to you that digital connection gives us the illusion of community without the responsibility of community. And in some ways, it has stolen from us the very thing that, that God has created and desires for us. I mean, think of it like this. Much easier, far more convenient to text than it is to talk. Uh, we post things we would never say face-to-face. And we feel no responsibility for the, respons- for, the, for the person on the other side of our posts. <laughs> um, see, digital connection allows us to keep a safe distance from the messiness of relationships. Um, and yet, we can feel like we're connected, like we're close. And yet, there's a huge gap. And... And then our experience with COVID this past couple of years has complicated it with another layer, hasn't it? See, we're even, today, we've even grown comfortable with the digital experience of church. You know, watching from the comfort and convenience of home with no interaction and no investment with other Christians or within the context of community. Now, obviously, there was a time when it served a needed and valuable purpose, but there are now unintended consequences of it. Um, I know that some are gonna push back on what I'm about to say. Um, We do not and we cannot mature spiritually in this privatized, isolated, isolated world of digital connection. We cannot. And it doesn't matter how many digital sermons you listen to. It doesn't matter how many podcasts you listen to in the course of a week. The nature of our life with Jesus, the nature of the spiritual life, is an embodied experience that is matured and deepened and sustained in relationship and community. And there's no exceptions to that. That's just the way it is. 
That's the way God designed it to be. And, and with all the messiness and all the mystery that involves, uh, I'm not romanticizing on any level what getting along with each, with, with each other is, is, is about. <laughs> it is messy. It is, it's just messy. It's a mysterious. But all of that is the very place where spiritual transformation occurs and is deepened. That's part of the mystery, isn't it? That in the, in the middle of all of that, God does something. You see, we do not experience God's grace at work in our lives apart from a community of people who notice it, affirm it, deepen it, and strengthen it. And that's an interconnected dynamic and reality. We cannot live this life alone. And in God, and, and we see this so loudly, it's the heart and soul of this prayer in John 17. Uh, God doesn't want us living in an individualized, an individualized, privatized, and sometimes isolated way of life that doesn't enrich or enliven the body of Christ. You and I in our relationship with Jesus, it's not just about you and me. It's not just for you and me. It's for others, and that all takes place in community. Our spiritual transformation is for the sake of others. He wants us to form friendships. He wants us to live in community. And friends, those who convince themselves however they convince themselves, and the, the list is long, those who convince themselves that they don't need vital or intentional relationships with other Christians are mistaken. And John 17 becomes kind of the classic passage that simply says, you're missing something. See, the church, as imperfect as we are, and we are quite imperfect. As imperfect as we are, the church in community is necessary for our spiritual growth. It's necessary for our spiritual wholeness. And what, what I want to move to now is necessary for the credibility of the gospel. So there's something else you and I recognize that we all experience today is how deeply polarized our country, our community, and even our churches are today. That's not rocket science, is it? We see it everywhere we look. Everything we're listening to uh, on the media is reminding us of, of, of how polarized of a world we're living in. And, and I, I hear it from many people, even church doesn't feel like a safe place. Living in community, it seems in, in, in recent years has become more complex, more complicated. Uh, we're, we're not sure if it's safe enough for me to share what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. I might get criticized or canceled, and I'm talking about within the church now. And, and so we don't feel safe. And, and so even one step removed, sharing Christ with other people in the midst of the moral, social, and political tensions of our cultural moment feels enormously challenging, if not daunting and impossible. And we have come to believe that somehow we've got to 
agree on everything before, and it's just so complicated. And so what do we do? More often than not, we retreat into the safety of our private lives, our private thoughts. Uh, And we're just grateful that we can stay connected digitally, but we've retreated. Out of fear of saying the wrong thing. Out of fear of of how volatile so many of the issues around us are. But here's here's what, what John 17 is calling us into. In fact, I would even use the word, it's commissioning all of us into. Stronger than inviting Jesus is commissioning something. You see, our divided, polarized, cultural moment presents us with an incredible opportunity to display something that makes Jesus attractive. A genuine, authentic oneness and love for one another that transcends all our differences. Uh, a oneness that treats people uh, with, with a dignity and respect because of a greater vision, something lived out in the Trinity that we're seeking to draw people into through faith in Jesus. So when the New Testament calls us to live in loving relationships with one another, so much more is at stake than being a friendly church. You know, so often, is, is Grace a friendly church? I hope so. But the destination is so much bigger than being a friendly church. Uh, we, we hear this language of oneness and Trinitarianism and it sounds so abstract and, and so fuzzy and so aloof. But the oneness Jesus described becomes the unmistakable mark of the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's, it's, it's the evidence that, that God and Jesus and the Spirit are alive and active in our lives uh, amid a world and, and all the things that would normally divide and polarize this, all of those things get pushed aside because of what we share in common or better, who we share in common. And, and far from being abstract, uh, you may be saying, okay, that sounds kind of, what's that look like? The New Testament fills in the blank over and over and over again. Here, here's just one passage I've selected. Therefore, as God's holy people, that's us. Those are the people who are in the community of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. His chosen people, holy and dearly loved, those who have experienced the transformational realities of what what Jesus does in us and who feel the love of, of the Trinity. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are not abstract qualities. Those are as earthy as you can get. We are to be people that are defined by compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, a patience, a bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, uh, Paul says, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you've heard me say before that the Greek phrase bear with each other simply means 
put up with things about people you'll never change. All the things that annoy you. All the things that disappoint you. Bear with one another. And if, if ever it crosses a line and it hurts you, forgive them. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. There it is again. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since we as members of one body are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one with all wisdom. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I want to be clear about something. Here's a great passage, and Jesus is calling us into community and into oneness, and through that oneness, it's going to be the unmistakable mark of the presence of Christ and the thing that will cause people to... to... Here's what I want to be clear about. Community is not the gospel. As good as, as what, what he's talking about is that this people stepping into community is not the gospel. But community is where we experience the fruit of the gospel. It's the most compelling evidence of the gospel. And to take it one step further, community is what brings the gospel believability and credibility. I was listening to a fascinating interview today, or this week, with uh, Tim Keller, retired pastor from New York, and, and he actually was, was referring to some, to some of this passage, and he said, one of the interesting things about John 17 is, is that Jesus, in, in talking about unity and all that he was praying here, never once talked about a method or a strategy for how to reach people. There, was no, there were no strategies here. <laughs> there were no plans. He said, you know, it's kind of simple, Love God, love people, and you know what? People will trust that. This is not complicated, but it's challenging and hard, isn't it? See, Jesus is calling us to a way of life. And those who know Jesus, those of you who know Jesus, find a safe family where we are accepted and known and loved with all our sin, all our imperfection, all of our brokenness, all our quirkiness, and all the weirdnesses of our lives. With all of that, we step into community, and there we find help and hope in the journey from others in the same journey with us. Who bring their sin and their brokenness and their quirkiness and their weirdness. But the, the, the point that Jesus is making is, is directed towards those who do not know Jesus. And, and this community becomes like a magnet. And we welcome people who don't know Jesus into our lives, into this family where they too are accepted and known and loved with all their sin and all their imperfection and all their brokenness and all their weirdness. The very thing that we want, we extend to people who don't know Jesus and we become a safe community where they can explore Jesus and ask their questions and 
their frustrations and vent their, their, their doubts and their fears with, with all the messiness of their beliefs and behaviors in the hope that over time they will discover Jesus. And they will discover the way of Jesus to be believable because of what they've experienced in community. That's the power of community. You see, Jesus' prayer gives you and me a crystal clear vision for our lives today. And how we are to disciple one another and how we're to represent Jesus in, in today's world. Um, I would dare say, well, in fact, I know. Jesus' prayer, Jesus is praying the same thing for us he prayed for the disciples. His prayer hasn't ceased. And as you and I read this prayer, we read it as our commissioning in the way we're called to live. I don't know how much more clear you can make it. And so when I, when I bump into a passage like this, it raises some honest questions. And I'm going to leave you with the questions. Because it, it raises some questions, doesn't it? When, when we step away from a passage like John 17, is that who we, Grace Church, is that who we are? Is that who we are? Would people say, ah, John 17, that's Grace Church. Or maybe I ask the question like this, is it even who we desire to be? Um, to make it more personal, is that how you experience Grace Church? Is that how those who visit Grace Church experience Grace Church? Is that how our community at large who do not know Jesus would describe Grace Church? Those are fair questions, friends. Good for us to linger with them. Father, thanks. For the freshness of a very familiar passage. a prayer that just kind of deeps, digs deep into who we are and invites us uh, into a way of life. And Father, I, I know how easy it is for me to just kind of withdraw from relationships and to uh, hunker down in the safety of my own home and, and forgive me of that. I know how awkward it is to be people who pursue other people and how we, we just want to wait for people to pursue us. Father, you call us into a level of community that reflects the very nature of life between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Help us come to grips with the, the weight and the significance of that. The, the privilege and the opportunity and the beauty of that. 
Again, it's so much richer than are we a friendly church. There's something dynamic and life-changing and believable about people who love one another and what's transcended above all that would naturally divide us. So, Father, may Jesus' prayer be our prayer. And, Father, may we live this as well as those in the room with Jesus lived it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we respond this morning, just as Gary left you with questions, what's God speaking to you right now? In the space of this next song, as we respond to his word, what's the takeaway for you in your heart? This next song, the title is called Yahweh. And as Gary was speaking and talking about just a community, the things that we have in common, not only with God, but even just the very beginning of Genesis that he breathed the breath of life into our hearts. We all breathe. And during practice this week, Isaac was sharing with me that he was listening to, maybe he was at a conference or was listening to a conference, but they were talking about the names of God and that Yahweh, they were talking. And then apparently afterwards, there was a rabbi that came up and said, look, you guys are talking about it all wrong. Yahweh is literally supposed to be said like a breath. Yah, Yahweh, Yahweh. And so in this space, as we respond and breathe, and respond to the spirit of Jesus. We breathe. So you can stand, you can sit, however you need to respond this morning. Sing this song together. Spirit of Jesus, living with to fail or foresee unending
and is to come is the one who lives in us the great I am Yahweh sing this with me he who was he who was and is to come is the one who lives in us the great I am Let us be known by our love as we leave this place. We're going to sing this last song together as a final response. Let us be known by our love. 
And we close out uh, with our benediction from words from John 17. And it's challenging. God's placed us in different schools and workplaces to live this out in our cultural climate, politics, whatever. Right now it is, it is challenging. So may we go. So let's, these are words from John 17. Let's stand for our benediction. As we leave this place, may we live out Jesus' prayer in John 17 that we would be one just as the father, the son, and the spirit are one. May we also be one with God 
so that the world may believe that God sent his son, Jesus. May we embrace the glory that God has given us so that we may be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Jesus resides in us and the Father resides in the Son so that we may be brought to perfect unity. So now as we walk out of this place, may the world experience through our loving presence the extravagant love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.